Welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, where I try and expand on that feeling uh, during the middle of my studies. After probably the 2000th time I had been asked what I studied, I started saying modern warfare, and people showed more interest. Modern warfare? What the hell's that? And I talk about this invisible hand that would sneak into our wallets and steal our money when we weren't looking. How uh, all of a sudden, all of these secret little thefts would occur that uh, the average person had no idea were going on. And all of a sudden, I had their attention. Of course, that's what economics is all about, if you ask me. That's why I host The Renegade Economist here on 3CR. Coming up to uh, show 430. So it's been a merry ride over the last eight years, and uh, today's guest is Warwick Smith, who's a research fellow at Per Capita, one of the growing number of think tanks applying pressure on public policy to reflect the the best possible outcome for we the people. Their slogan is Ideas for a Fairer Australia. So uh, we started off the conversation talking about the big trade agreement announcement, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was signed last week in Auckland, New Zealand. So uh, let's settle in to hear Warwick Smith from Per Capita. One of the big stories of the last week or so was the signing of the TPP in Auckland, New Zealand, where local activists shut down the city and uh, Prime Minister Key was uh, so disturbed by the level of uh, opposition to the, this global signing of the treaty that uh, he didn't attend their, their uh, uh, Waitangi Day uh, celebrations and uh, the effects of this signing are going to uh, uh, ripple around the global economy. W what aspects were you most concerned of in that new trade agreement? Well, you know, we need an hour to talk about them all, I think. I mean, the biggest issue with these trade agreements and, and you know, this misnomer of free trade agreements is that they're, to a very large extent, authored by large multinational corporations and they author them obviously in their own interests because that's you know that's what they're supposed to do work in their own interests and um you know then they're sold as free trade agreements as if we're you know we're liberalizing trade and and here's all the efficiency gains that are going to occur but you know they're anything but free trade agreements they're they're kind of bilateral or multilateral trade agreements that favor particular industries or particular nations capacity to do particular things they're not not at all about uh, broadly and generally opening markets uh, so that's that's a kind of overarching issues I suppose but the, the secretive nature by which big corporations uh, are involved in the very drafting of the agreements and um, you know, their lack of transparency and, and the fact that in our democracies we don't get the opportunity to be involved in those negotiations or even know what the content of the negotiations are until there's a fully formed, fully fledged, unalterable document that is either signed or not signed. So they're a 
there are economic problems with them, there are democratic problems with them, um, and obviously, you know, major rent-seeking issues. And, and the role of Big Pharma behind some of these behind these trade agreements is certainly rising to prominence as uh, their influence um, being one of the top two or three donors in the US system filters around the globe. Uh, But let's uh, pull the lens back and look at an overview. And on the 1st of January this year, you released another interesting article. Uh, Listeners, you can check out Warwick Smith and his work on The Conversation and the one that caught my eye on New Year's Day, I don't think I read it then, but it's nice to be able to look back and see uh, Cabinet Papers from 1990, Lessons from the Recession We Didn't Have. Now, you you, um, brought up uh, an interesting notion of how government, how the Reserve Bank of Australia has changed its focus from that time and and how we learnt from this recession. Yeah, I I think the... The cabinet papers were revealing in in a few senses. They weren't, you know, it wasn't a lot of shocking or, or controversial things in those cabinet papers that were released this January. But but one of the things that, that was clear was that Keating, Paul Keating as treasurer at that point, and the Reserve Bank were very concerned about the current account deficit. You know, our our balance of trade with other countries and their both fiscal and monetary policies were heavily influenced by decisions about the impact on balance of trade and what we learned from that recession in terms of policy was that balance of trade really in the scheme of things doesn't matter the, the key the key things that are important uh, from from a reserve bank perspective, the, the key thing that's really important is inflation and keeping inflation in check. It, it was certainly interesting back in those days as a high school student. I remember reading The Age and, you know, it was every month when the, the current account deficit figures came out. It was huge headlines. It was a really big issue. And, you know, the foreign debt um, concerned continued to mount and I just wonder whether that was a hangover of, you know, the the relative newness of uh, the foreign exchange system having uh, come off the, the gold exchange in 72, 73 and only floated our exchange rate in 1985, uh, that this was part of the learning process. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And in fact, that learning process of the, the impact of the... Um dropping of the gold standard by Nixon in 1971 um, is still ongoing. You know, we still haven't learnt really all of the lessons about what it means to have uh, a free-floating fiat currency that's not backed by anything, that has no um, material value that's been behind it as it once did with the gold standard. And that's right. I think that was one of those lessons that it used to be important how much money we owed other countries because that money put a claim on our gold reserves. But, you know, once the gold standard was abandoned, the general perception now is that it might matter how much money our government owes other countries. There can be uh, impacts from that. But in terms of our overall economy, 
the private sector um, owing money to other countries. It's considered more just a matter of their choice and an arrangement between two private entities and, and not of a interest to the federal government. And and what you wrote about there was quite interesting in terms of the government's concern over the current account deficit, but in learnings, uh, it should have been keeping a closer eye on inflation. Why do you think the disparity between interest rates and inflation was so great back in those days? Because in this article that uh, listeners will be able to find in our show notes, you'll see that uh, uh, interest rates were a lot higher than what inflation would actually require in this day and age to, to keep in check. Yeah, so there were two things happening at the same time. They, they had higher interest rates than you would expect given the inflation rate. And also, much tighter fiscal policy than you would expect, given the fact that the economy was heading to and then into recession. Prior wisdom would tell you that, since in economics tells you that as the economy is heading down, the government should spend more to keep demand up and and keep the economy going during that uh, private economy downturn. But what Keating was doing was he was keeping a real lead on government spending because he wanted to keep private internal demand low in order to boost exports. So that um, effort of, of a higher interest rate and very tight fiscal policy was aimed at suppressing domestic demand while trying to, to stimulate business to increase exports. So it was all about trying to fix that um, foreign account balance. It puts into perspective just what sort of a quandary policymakers have in terms of how they structure things because at the same time, 89, 90, we had the peak of the, the property bubble at the time and this was a commercially led property bubble rather than residential but still uh, the fact that interest rates went up to 17% uh, that really hurt mortgage holders and affected consumer demand. Yeah, absolutely and, and as I just said that um, that was in part intentional so you know, Keating called it the recession we had to have which is why I labelled that article uh, lessons from the recession we didn't have to have but you know to give them fair credit they just didn't have those policy insights available at the time or you know if if there were some people saying these things they were just a, a few in a sort of outside minority who were suggesting that the current account wasn't wasn't important enough to justify this um deepening of the recession or in fact potentially the causing of the recession. So with the dollar recently floated and interest rates so high, my memory was that the Aussie dollar was actually pretty high. So whilst they were trying to sacrifice consumer demand to keep a lid on inflation, our export competitiveness was being undermined by the high dollar. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And um well, with interest rates so high, people were involved in good old uh, casino currency trading and, dare say, George Soros yep. and team made a, made a killing uh, in those early days of currency so trading. Yes, yes. 
So it, it's a it's interesting, isn't it, that this era we we had this birthing of the economic rationalists, and there was this big cutting back on, uh, you know, what was seen as lavish public sector employment, where you know there were scare campaigns run of twelve guys leaning on shovels and one guy digging the the trench sort of thing. And I often joke that uh, that sort of mentality has been replaced now by highly paid consultants on a long Friday lunch. Yes, or in fact, a, a consultant coming back to um, to earn the same as those twelve guys were. You know, one of them lead, one of them working and the others leaning on their shovels. Exactly. So, how do you think economics has evolved since, since this time? We were able to learn from this recession. Um, how has policy shifted since the global financial crisis? I think, unfortunately, the answer is is not all that much. You know, one of the biggest things that has changed since the global financial crisis, and this doesn't apply to Australia but to much of the rest of the world, is the willingness of central banks to create money in, in so-called quantitative easing to buy financial assets from the banks in order to, you know, ostensibly increase their liquidity and their likelihood to, to lend and therefore to stimulate the economy. So this, you know, this is pretty new. It's, it's a new thing that, that the central banks are, are willing to just radically increase the money supply during a downturn. And it proves, it proves lots of other things, in particular some of the theories of uh, modern monetary theorists who suggest that uh, money creation should be a, a regular tool used by governments alongside standard monetary and fiscal policy in times of low of low inflation. So the, the standard line. It's very interesting, that perspective, and Joseph Stiglitz has written uh, one of those op-eds this week that just slaps you about the ears. Uh, it's called What's Holding Back the World Economy? analyzing the United Nations report on uh, world economic situation and prospects for 2016, showing the average growth rate in developed economies has declined by more than 54% since the crisis. And in that, they're talking about excess federal reserves that have been stored at the Fed, and they've jumped from an average $200 billion between 2000 and 2008 to $1.6 trillion over the last six years. The figures you just cite confirm what I just said about the major policy change being this creation of money by central banks and the purchasing of financial assets. And the result has been, you know, largely just to prop up the financial industry and support their um, habit of speculating on assets and, and causing asset price inflation and has had very, very little impact on their general tendency to lend and therefore the, their influence on the broader economy. Mm, the UN saying here that instead of lending to the real economy, they've earned nearly $30 billion completely risk-free from basically taking this money from the Fed and then storing it uh, with uh, the, their sovereign guarantee and earning you know, some tiny interest. But due to the recent Fed's interest rate, hike, the, the subsidy to these financial institutions will increase by $13 billion this year. So he sort of raises in the article the need for there to be some sort of 
penalty for holding these excess reserves with the Fed. Uh, so we've gone from this world of the economic rationalist that got uh, seriously critiqued and um, in a way neoliberalism took over from that. We're, we've moved from trickle-down economics to this quantitative easing is, is going to save the global economy. But it seems like... Uh, the, the results have been less than favourable for the inner sanctions of the global policy elite. I don't think we've moved on from trickle-down to quantitative easing. I think quantitative easing is still kind of trickle-down. You know, we're, we're, is, yeah. giving, we're, we're pumping heaps of money into the financial industry, which are, you know, already full of fat cats, and with the assumption that that money will find its way out into the broader economy and and to the, to the everyday people. And yet again, it's proving not to be true. There's this great uh, photograph that's circulated around the internet of Ronald Reagan and Dick Cheney and a bunch of others, you know, in those circles. And, you know, many of them are doubled over laughing and there's sort of obvious hilarity in the room. And somebody put the caption onto that photograph. And then we told them that it would trickle down. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of sums it up. It's like, I don't think any of those people really believed in trickle-down economics, right? They just saw it as a way to um, to sell their own rent-seeking to the population. And as far as the broader population goes, I think, I think people are learning those lessons. How much impact that's having on policy is yet to be seen. And... You know, the 2008 financial crisis happened and very little of substance changed in policy shortly after that. But I think that's partly because there hasn't been a, a sort of coherent and well-championed alternative waiting in the wings, which is always what you need, you know, for, for major policy change. And in fact, you know, that's what happened when the neoliberal era began. And there was shocks to the system in the 1970s, the Vietnam War and the oil shocks that caused the dropping of the gold standard and flow-on effects from all of that. There was this fairly coherent, well-formed, theoretically-backed alternative to Keynesianism and to protectionism that was wrapped up in the theory of neoclassical economics and many of the sort of oversimplified tenets of neoclassical economics. Last Thursday night, the Property Council of Australia decided to flex their muscles and threaten both sides of uh, Australian politics with a marginal seats campaign with their defining of just how many negative gearers were located in certain locations around the country and that was shocking enough but to think they could do that some two to three days after the donations were revealed by the Australian Electoral Council and finding that major property developers had donated 2.4 
million dollars to uh, both sides of politics. So that sort of um, shows the barrier to entry, if you like, uh, on just how confident these lobbyists have become and how willing they are to throw their weight around to represent their interests. And unfortunately, groups like GetUp are, uh, you know, stuck in this neoclassical two-dimensional analysis and keep resorting to soft left um, economic uh, insights. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the, the key thing that, that you've just hit on there is the statement donations to both sides of politics. You know, there, there's a very interesting phenomenon of, of many industries and many individual businesses donating exactly the same side, the same amounts to both sides of politics. And, you know, clearly it's not about helping one side or the other win. It's about removing issues from the from democratic scrutiny, you know, taking issues off the table. And we've seen various industries flex their muscles with this. And, you know, if, if one of the parties diverges and does something that's actually, you know, popular with the electorate that damages one of these vested interests, they just immediately change the balance of their donations to favour the other party as a, you know slap on the wrist and in a few instances we've seen we've seen those parties proposing the reforms drop them pretty quickly particularly with respect to it was a gambling reform with pokies when the Labor Party had their arm twisted by Nick Xenophon to um, sort of at least start talking about gambling machine reform and immediately the gambling industry dramatically switched their donations to favouring the Liberal Party and soon after, at the cost of Nick Xenophon's vote in Parliament, the Labor Party dropped all talk of those reforms. Uh, and the other clear example was the financial advice, freedom of financial advice regulations where the banks very quickly started to favour their donations to the Liberal Party after these uh, regulations were brought in that were aimed at preventing the banks from giving financial advice to people that favour the banks rather than the client. And, um, again, eventually those, those reforms were wound back. So we've got some pretty clear evidence of how those donations to both sides play out. So your work at Per Capita, an interesting think tank that has uh, grown quite rapidly in the last uh, decade or so, uh, with Malcolm Turnbull's hesitance this week in terms of the tax reform agenda, he's removed his support uh, from uh, expanding the GST, which, of course, uh, we at uh, Prosper Australia are very happy about. And he's also um, hinted that the use of uh, land taxes at the state level is something that just must be um, uh, more closely investigated. Uh what is your team looking at uh, for the future economic uh, playbook for government? We're just gearing up to, to run our annual tax survey again, which asks Australian residents their opinion on a variety of tax issues. And uh, certainly some of the things that you've mentioned are going to feature in this year's survey. There are, there are a series of questions that are the same from survey to survey and then uh, five or six at the end of the survey that we vary depending on what's current and uh, certainly we'll be asking questions about 
the topical issues that are happening right now. But one of the things that the tax survey routinely shows is that Australians on the whole are willing to pay more tax if they believe that those dollars are going to be used for improving the education system or the health system in particular. Those two things are are very popularly supported. And, you know, the both major parties have got themselves trapped into this rhetoric of, you know, no new taxes and not increasing the tax take. And if we increase this tax, then we're going to use that money to reduce some other tax. And, it, you know, it's all about fiddling around with their taxes while maintaining the same overall tax take. And the result, of course, is that the only way to fix a budget deficit is to cut expenditure. And it's not actually what the population want. The population would be willing to pay higher taxes, on average, of course, if they felt that it was supporting the health and education systems, which are both seriously uh, being squeezed at the moment. So that's one of the major uh, contributions, I think, per capita will be making in the next little while is, again, highlighting that discrepancy between policy of both major parties and the opinions of the public, which, again, go back to, you know, who are they serving then? If they're not reflecting the interests of their constituents, who are these policies serving? And, you know, when you hear that they, they want to raise the GST so that they can lower the corporate income tax uh, or lower the highest marginal tax rates, then it's kind of pretty obvious who they're serving. That was Warwick Smith from Per Capita. He's a research fellow there. Many of you have probably read his articles on theconversation.edu.au or The Drum, which is the ABC outlet. He's got an article up there today looking at Medicare reform. And it's just so ironic uh, with the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership being signed uh, back uh, 120, 150-odd years ago, there was a, a, a movement for free trade because it was a battle against vested interests who were enjoying protection from government in terms of uh, uh, various sort of tariffs and so forth that were established. Sure, some of them were important to um, build up industries, but then there were others that were just a a protectionism for uh, insiders. And to see now that the tables having turned so that uh, the TPP uh, is using this terminology of free trade, but really still the same trend is going on where insiders who generally are those with uh, large land holdings who are beneficiaries of this naturally rising value of the earth. They are the ones who are uh, uh, pushing forward uh, this big pharma movement, uh, uh, trying to guarantee that their 15,000% markups on certain drugs are not to be questioned and uh, to storm on into Australia and wreak havoc through our public health system that delivers some of the least cost, most efficient, uh, most effective uh, public health in the world. So uh, we have to stay alert because that seems to be the new 
target for government is perhaps they'll reform superannuation handouts, but they've also got their sights set on uh, using this budget deficit as an excuse to hack into uh, some of the last elements of uh, uh, the, the public interest and the, the public system of uh, uh, building upon knowledge and delivering services at least cost, avoiding the markets. Well, it's still within some form of market system, but the political process seems to be every bit as competitive in delivering low-cost alternatives to the community as what the market system is, particularly when there is just so much rent-seeking involved uh, from uh, virtually every, every step we take outside our front door so uh, I'd like to bring to your attention this Friday this weekend we have the sustainable living festival and on Friday at two o'clock yes under the gum tree the marquee there on the banks of the Yarra River I will be giving a presentation on beyond peak oil to peak monopoly and I'm going to delve into how the peak oil uh, play and this whole resource scarcity movement is part of the diversion plan away from the 0.01%, these vested interests who have wrecked havoc uh, through our democratic 